Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Hello, I'm Daniel. I am going to give a teaching from chapter two of The Way of the Bodhisattva. This chapter is called Confessing Misdeeds. Confessing Misdeeds. So I'm going to read from the text and comment on it as we go through. But um, at the start, I want to say this chapter covers a an aspect of a Buddhist teaching called the seven branches. The seven branches are a list of seven things that are designed to help us cultivate virtue. And this chapter in particular does the first three. And then the chapter after this uh, goes into the other four, but cultivating virtue is something really important to our well-being. It's something that sometimes people want to skip over when they study Buddhism but there's a reason why many Buddhist texts talk about virtue first and talk about meditation after. And it's just because not being virtuous can really easily spread chaos into our lives, can really easily get in the way of our practice. So even though, you know, I'm just trying to learn how to do cool meditations, I don't want to learn about virtue, right? I'm just trying to learn how to focus, trying to learn how to be more aware of the world around me. I don't need to learn virtue. I want to skip it. Well, no, we should not skip these kinds of teachings. Okay. So I just want to set that out there so that you're aware what this reading is about. It's about cultivating virtue. And really, it's about looking for help from Buddhism as well in our lives. So that is what we're going to talk about here. This chapter in particular has a lot of imagery to it, and that can be challenging for some people. And we are just going to see how it goes. But there's a lot of really descriptive things that, again, we might feel like skipping over, but we shouldn't. So confessing misdeeds. In order to grasp that precious attitude, I make fine offerings to the Tathagatas, to the true Dharma, the Immaculate Jewel, and to the Oceans of Qualities, Bodhisattvas. Um, that precious attitude he's talking about, that is the heart-centered attitude. That is the attitude of compassion and love, okay? Which is what was talked about in chapter one. In order to grasp that attitude, he's making offerings. And we're going to talk about all the offerings he makes. Um, there's a lot, but the intention behind offerings is to help us overcome a lack of faith, faith mainly in ourselves, but faith in the teachings as well. So giving offerings and even just thinking about giving offerings helps us deal with that lack of faith because that lack of faith can be really poisonous and can really get in our way. We can start to think, I'm not good enough for this spiritual journey. I'm not good enough for this practice. I'm, I know we're saying all beings have awakeness as their nature, but surely not me, right? Surely not such a broken person as me. And 
So we make these offerings to help us remind ourselves, well, we can do things and we can be worthy. Now, Shantideva here, and I promise I'll read about the offerings in a second, but um, it's important to have in your mind, he is a poor monk with nothing, okay? So to an extent, he's giving offerings of what he can, but he's really also imagining offerings sort of as a, a mental exercise, sort of tr sort of to trick his brain into thinking he's giving something when he's physically not doing it. So he has a list of things that he lists that he wishes that he would like to offer to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, to the teachings, in order to, like I said, help overcome his own lack of faith. And it's hard to even... It's hard for us to even grasp that a beloved spiritual teacher had his own lack of faith, but he did. Everyone does. Okay, so we're going to go over the offerings that he recites here, and that's where we're going. So, as many fruits and flowers as there are, whatever kinds of medicine exist, however many jewels there are in the world, all clean and pleasant waters there may be. Mountains of jewels and likewise forest groves in solitary and delightful places, bushes adorned with ornamental flowers and trees whose branches bow with splendid fruit. Incense and perfumes are from as from divine worlds and so forth, wish fulfilling trees, jewel trees and crops that grow without need to be plowed, all ornaments that are fit to be offered. And lakes and pools bedecked with lotuses where lovely swans have the most delightful calls, everything that's unowned extending to the edges of the realms of infinite space. I imagine taking these and offer them well to the sages, the greatest of beings, and their offspring. Sublime and greatly compassionate recipients, think of me lovingly. Accept these from me. I am bereft of merit, destitute, and I have no other wealth that I could offer. May the protectors who think of others weal accept these through their power for my sake. And he's going to go on, so I will go on, but I just wanted to take a moment to say, he's saying I'm bereft of merit and destitute. And that is how all of us feel sometimes, right? We feel like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough, right? And he feels that way too. We all do sometimes. So this is important because sometimes we're trying to be virtuous. We're trying to make good decisions. And sometimes we don't do that, right? And it can be really hard to give ourselves a break to forgive ourselves and to acknowledge that, well, I'm I'm a human being. I make mistakes just like everybody else. Everybody makes mistakes like this. But we need to keep that in mind. That is part of this. That is part of this. So uh, remind yourself when you think you're bereft of merit and destitute that Shantideva thought that way too. And we all think that way sometimes. We all struggle with thinking we're not good enough for this world 
or for these teachings. We all struggle with that at times. I believe that. Forevermore I offer all my bodies to the victorious ones and to their offspring. O sublime beings, accept me entirely and I will be your dedicated servants. Because you accepted me completely, not fearing existence, I will benefit beings. I will transcend my previous misdeeds and never do another wrong again. So these teachings, this path, this bodhisattva path, is making him feel like he's part of something. So he's saying they have accepted him completely because he's engaging these teachings. And by studying these teachings and by engaging them, and ultimately, if we take vows, by taking vows, we are making ourselves part of something, part of a lineage. Even if we're doing it alone, like we're part of the other people that have done it, we're part of the other people doing it. Just resolving to walk the bodhisattva path and try to make the world a better place is in itself something that we're doing with others, even if we're doing it alone. And the the truth is the path can feel lonely sometimes, but we're not alone. We are, we are part of a lineage. We are part of all the practitioners that have come before and all the people doing it now and the people doing it in the future. And Shantideva is saying he can feel that because he's taking these vows, because he's taking this path seriously. He feels like he's part of something. And that gives him some confidence. Gives him some confidence. Just feeling like you're part of something can make you feel like you can accomplish things that are seemingly impossible, like showing compassion all the time, living with a totally open heart, saving all beings, right? So that that's what we're talking about, cultivating confidence. Not a not a selfish, I'm better than other people kind of confidence, but rather a, I can really help others confidence. I can make a difference confidence. And he goes on, there's more imagery here. Within this sweetly fragrant house for bathing, where the bright and lustrous floors are paved with crystal, alluring pillars are aglow with jewels, and glistening pearls are draped in canopies. I bathe the Shugatas and Bodhisattvas from precious vases that have been filled full of water, imbued with many fragrances accompanied by songs and harmonies. With cloth the, cloths that are beyond compare and clean, infused with a fine scent, I dry their bodies. And then I offer them the finest robes, well-dyed and most delightfully perfumed. I drape Samantabhadra, Lokeshvara, Manjushri, and the other noble beings with fabrics that are delicate and soft and hundreds of the finest ornaments. Those are... Um, and we don't need to go into who those are, but those are bodhisattvas. Those are... Um, Maybe historical figures, maybe not, that are revered and their stories get told in this tradition of Buddhism. Okay, that's all. That's who Samantabhadra, Lokeshvara, and Manjushri are. Like polishing the purest refined gold, I apply the finest scents whose fragrances waft everywhere throughout the billion worlds to the radiant bodies of all Shugatas. Shugatas are beings that are striving for awakening. I offer the great beings I venerate, the lords of sages, every fragrant flower, Mandarava, 
lotus, jasmine, and so forth, and pleasing garlands strung attractively. I also offer billowing clouds of incense filled with the sweetest, most enchanting scents, and royal feasts I offer them as well, replete with an assortment of food and drink. I do... um, I do some of this. I have a Buddha statue in my living room. I do make incense offerings. And that just sort of makes the space feel more sacred. And it is a way of honoring where these teachings come from. It's a way of honoring. And so it it does, to me, it helps me overcome my own lack of faith. Just to make this offering to this statue it's a statue but it represents something bigger than a statue further i make an offering of jeweled lamps arranged in rows on golden lotuses i scatter the petals of attractive flowers on a paved floor anointed with perfume i offer those who are compassionate numberless palaces adorning the sky beautifully glowing with strings of pearls and jewels and echoing with melodious songs of praise I always offer to the lords of sages beauteous jeweled parasols with golden staves, fine-shaped, upright, and pleasing to the eye, their rims festooned with winsome ornaments. And furthermore, may there extend clouds of attractive offerings with lovely tunes and harmonies that soothe all beings' sufferings. May rains of gems and flowers and more continuously shower down on all the jewels of the true Dharma, as well as on stupas and likenesses. Um, stupas are grave sites where of, um, of Buddhist teachers who have been really beneficial to others. And it's sort of like you can go to the graves of the stupa is a, a, uh, formation that gets set up there and you can go like pay your respects and things and likenesses are you know statues statues and images and he's saying i'm gonna bless those too okay as manju gosha and the rest make offerings to the victorious ones i offer to the tathagatas the protectors and their offspring i extol the oceans of qualities with oceans of melodies of praise may clouds of hymns and praise of them arise just so continuously. So, uh, chanting is a thing in Buddhism. Hymns of praise, that's what he's talking about here. Sometimes we do chanting and we say things like, Om Mani Padme Hum, which is just the jewel in the lotus is what it means, but it's just our, our awake true nature is inside us. And we want to just sing praises to it. And when I first started practicing, I really thought that was weird and I really didn't like it. But the point is, it helps us come together. It helps us feel like we're part of something. It helps, again, overcome our lack of faith. I prostrate, bowing as many bodies as there are atoms in all realms to the Buddhas of the three times, the Dharma and the sublime Sangha. I prostrate to the sacred sites and stupas of the bodhisattva. I also prostrate to the abbots, the masters, and the supreme adepts. That is another thing that is done in Buddhism is bowing. You bow to a shrine. You bow to a statue. You may bow to a person. um, And as a group, we can bow to each other also. And 
And again, like chanting, that's something that felt really weird to me when I first started practicing. Like, I'm going to bow to a statue? Why? Right? But it's about what the statue represents. I'm going to bow to a person? Why? Well, again, it's about what the person represents. But also, we can all bow to each other. I'm less into bowing to a great and honorable teacher. And I'm more into us bowing to each other because we all have that same Buddha nature, that divine spark, that that constant wakefulness inside us. And we're just trying to manifest that. And that's what this is all about, okay? We're just trying to manifest that. And bowing, another thing with bowing is it sort of helps us. If you bow and you go all the way to the floor, it's hard to hang on to your ego while you're doing that. So it sort of helps us overcome our self-centered, ego-driven, normal way of thinking to bow in that way, even though it does it does feel weird. Um, after you do it a while, it starts to feel less weird. Until I reach enlightenment's essence, I go for refuge to the Buddhas. I go for refuge to the Dharma and Sangha of Bodhisattvas too. So this is what we call going for refuge. In Buddhism, when you officially become a Buddhist, you can do what's called a refuge vow ceremony. And this is just, we're just saying that this, this is what I rely on. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. This is what I rely on. This is what helps me get through the vagaries of life. Life is a struggle, and this is what helps me. This is my rock. The Buddha um, represents not only the historical figure, Siddhartha Gautama, who started the tradition of Buddhism, but really it, it represents also the innate Buddha nature that you have inside you. We are also taking refuge in our own true nature, which is good and is pure and is aware and awake and wise. Okay, But also, the Buddha also represents guides, teachers that show us the way, either through their talks or through reading their teachings. We're taking refuge in them too. We're leaning on guides to help us show the way. And the truth is anyone can be a teacher. It doesn't have to be someone that knows more than you. Anyone that inspires you in this bodhisattva journey is, in a sense, a teacher. Okay? And that's an important thing to remember because Again, plenty of people are down on themselves and they think, oh, I have nothing to teach, right? And also, on the flip side of that, of course, plenty of people can start to maybe take the confidence too far and start to think they have nothing to learn, too. And the truth is, you can learn someone from everyone, something from everyone you meet. You can learn something about this open heart practice from everyone you meet. Sometimes it's about maybe what you don't want to do, but you can always learn something, okay? So... The Buddha and other guides help us on the path, okay? Dharma represents the teachings, texts like this one, talks like this one, really. The things, the path, the path, the rules that we're following and the teachings that we're learning about reality, that is what the Dharma is. So when we learn about that our true nature is basically good, that is the Dharma. When we study this text, that is the Dharma. When we learn 
just how to cultivate the right attitude. That's the Dharma. When we learn how to meditate, that's the Dharma. It's all the Dharma. It could be even broader than that, but that's what we're talking about here. It's the teachings about the nature of things and about what we can do to change our lives and to help others. That's what the Dharma is, okay? And then the last one, the Sangha, which in this text he calls it the Sangha of Bodhisattvas, and that's okay. Um, sometimes it's just called the Sangha, but what we're talking about is the community, the community, other people who are doing the same thing you're doing, who are making the same kinds of efforts you're making to open their hearts, to learn how to pay attention, to be mindful, to walk the Bodhisattva way. It helps to have a community, to have other people on the same journey as you. That helps, okay? If we're hanging out with virtuous people, we will become more virtuous. If we're hanging out with mindful people, we will become more mindful. So a goal we can have is, that's not to say that if someone's really mindful, mindless and unvirtuous, you should cut them out of your life, but it is to say, look for opportunities to spend time with people who are positive, with people who are trying to make the world a better place, with people who are virtuous. We want to spend time with people that we want to be like as much as we can. So that's why spiritual community is very important because it connects you with other people who have the same kinds of goals as you. And that's why, honestly, sometimes in Buddhism, we're under, underserved by our spiritual communities because they haven't, in many cases, really figured out how to make people feel like they belong together and like they're part of something and that they can make friends. Sometimes spiritual communities struggle to figure out how to do that. And people just show up to the temple and they do the practice and they go home and they don't make friends and they don't hang out with each other. And that's... um. I don't have an answer for that, but I do wish it was different because the spiritual community can really be a center for something if people make it happen. If people make it happen, I think of hmm, okay, I think of when my father passed, the church we went to, um, I don't know how they did it, but they organized a thing where members of the church brought dinner to my house every night for seemed like a long time, different people bringing it. Um, and that really helped my mom out a lot. And cause I was a kid and my brother was around too. And she didn't have to take care of dinner for a little while. But the thing about that is I can't, the Buddhist communities I've been engaged with, like it's hard to imagine that happening. It could, it should because that's what spiritual communities should be doing, but it's sort of hard to imagine that happening. Um, and that's, I'm not trying to be critical, but I am saying that communities need to figure out how to be close knit and strong so that people are meeting each other and making friends and sort of developing lifelong relationships because that will enormously help people on the path enormously. And I think it, uh, we let it slide sometimes in Buddhism. We let, we let Sangha 
or community of practitioners, we let that slide. We make it less important than it needs to be, maybe. So, um, moving on. To the perfect Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who dwell in every direction, to those endowed with great compassion, I join my palms and supplicate. And again, supplicate is another way to bow. And next, he's going to do something called... He's going to do something... He's going to talk about something called the four powers. And... Those are remorse, support, making effort, resolving not to commit again. So this is the beginning of the section of the Confessing Misdeeds chapter that's actually about confessing misdeeds, okay? Remorse, support, making effort, resolving not to commit again. That is um, essentially what we're doing with our misdeeds. We are... Remorse is just realizing we've done wrong things and we all have support is just leaning on our community and our teachings to help us making effort is really cultivating virtues so that the same mistakes don't happen again and then resolving not to commit again is just declaring well i'm not going to do that again okay so here i'm going to read the section now In this and in my other lives, throughout the beginningless samsara, deluded I have done misdeeds, I have instigated them, and also, compelled by ignorant confusion, I have rejoiced in them. I see they were mistakes, and I confess to the protectors from my depths. I have, because of the afflictions, caused harm in body, speech, and mind to the three jewels and to my parents and to the gurus, among many others." I, who am wicked and am stained by numerous failings, have committed misdeeds that are most terrible. Before the guides, I confess them all. I am going to perish quickly. Before I am cleansed of my misdeeds, how can I be rescued from them? I beg you to deliver me. The Lord of death, untrustworthy, won't tarry for what's done or undone. So no one, whether or not they're ill, should place their trust in fleeting life. Uh, so the Lord of Death, that's a metaphor for how we're all going to die, right? And he, he's saying, like, you may not get time to apologize. You may not get time to try to make it right of things you've done wrong. You may not get time. And those are things that we want to put off, right? And so he's saying, you may not get, get time. The Lord of Death could come. Anytime, life is fleeting, okay? So, if you have someone to apologize to, um, you should do it. I must leave all behind and go, but I have not yet recognized that for the sake of those I like or dislike, I have done various misdeeds. Those I don't like will cease to be, and those I like will cease to be. I myself will cease to be, and everyone will cease to be. All of the things that I have used will become objects of memory as if experienced in a dream. I'll never see what's past again. Even during this life, many of those I like and dislike have passed away, and yet the terrible misdeeds I've done for their sake remain before me. 
Because I have not recognized that I as well am ephemeral, I have committed many wrongs out of delusion, greed, and hatred. Not pausing even a day or night, this life's continuously depleted, and there is no extending it. So why would one like me not die? While I am lying in my bed, surrounded by all my relatives, I will experience alone the feeling of my life being cut. When seized by Yama's messengers, what good are friends, what good are kin, merit alone will guard me then. But alas, I haven't practiced that. Um, Yama is another name for Lord of Death. It's another example of a metaphor. Um, so we might say the Grim Reaper instead of Yama. We might say when seized by the Grim Reaper's messengers, what good are friends, right? We might say that instead. Um, so yeah, he's talking about the impermanence of life. Um, there's sort of an aspect of you can't take it with you, so why take things from people? You can't take it with you, so why take things from people? Um, and the way pleasure comes and goes, why indulge in this wrong thing to feel good when, again, you can't take it with you and it comes and goes, but we can try to live an upright life instead and have more harmony with the world around us and more well-being too instead of indulging all the time, especially – and make this bold and underline it, especially indulging in things that harm other people. Things that harm other people. Protectors, I have carelessly committed numerous misdeeds for the sake of this ephemeral life. Oblivious, there is such a danger. If people who are being led to have their limbs chopped off today look different than they did before with their parched mouth and mouths and bloodshot eyes, what need to to say how wretched I'll be when Yama's henchmen have me seized. Their physiognomies dire and dread, and I am gripped by terrible pain. Who will protect me truly from this horrifying danger, I'll cry, eyes bulging with terror, as I search in the four directions for a refuge. But seeing no protection in the four directions, I'll then despair. If there's no refuge in that place, what will I do at such a time? Thus, from today, I go for refuge to the victors, guardians of beings, who strive to protect all wanderers, those with great power who dispel all fear. Likewise, I truly go for refuge to the Dharma they have realized, which dispels the terrors of samsara and to the Sangha of Bodhisattvas. So he's saying, yes, we're all going to die. Yes, the world's full of impermanence and suffering, and I'm going for refuge. And what's the refuge going to do? It's not going to save him from death. It's not going to save us from death. What it is going to do, though, is help him find the right state of mind to accept the pain in this world and face it with what we call equanimity which is just not falling apart when things get hard, but just seeing the way things are and moving through life. Being able to develop that state of mind that says, right now it's like this, what can I do? Instead of our normal state of mind, which is, why is this happening to me? Why me? Why not someone else? Why me? Because we get into that state of mind very easily, but 
we don't have to. We don't have to. And he's going to go on to uh, talk about refuge in various bodhisattvas. And again, these are just archetypal beings. Um, maybe they're based on historical figures and maybe they're not, but they represent things. Um, Kasiti Garba is one that represents virtue. I have a tattoo of him on my arm. And Avalokiteshvara is one that represents compassion. So I'm going to read his going to refuge to these and offering things to these bodhisattvas. Here they are. Petrified with dread, I give myself over to Samantabhadra. I also make an offering to Manjugosha of my body. I cry a miserable wail to guardian Avalokiteshvara, whose acts of mercy are unmistaken. I beg, protect me who have done wrong. To noble Akashagarbha and to Kasiti Garba, to every one of the protectors with great compassion, I cry from my heart in search of refuge. I go for refuge to Vajrapani, upon the sight of whom, from fear, malevolent beings like the henchmen of Yama flee in the four directions. I have in the past transgressed your word. But now that I've seen the great peril, I go to you for refuge and plead. Swiftly eliminate this fear. If one must do as doctors say from fear of ordinary illness, what need to speak of being infected continually by the sickness of the hundred wrongs of lust and such? If even one of these can ruin all people who live in Jambudvipa, and no other medicine to cure it can be obtained in any direction to think that I might not do as directed by the omniscient healer who removes every pain would be blameworthy and completely deluded. Um, the omniscient healer is the Buddha and he is sometimes described as like a doctor. Um, he, the Buddhist teachings of the four noble truths, which are a foundational Buddhist teaching, um, are sometimes described as a doctor describing an illness and giving a, a treatment. Uh, and briefly, the Four Noble Truths are life is suffering, the cause of suffering is craving, there is a way out of suffering, and the way out is the Buddhist path. Life contains suffering, Cause of suffering is craving. There's a way out of suffering, and the way out is the Buddhist path. Um, that the cause of suffering is craving, the second noble truth, that is just, we suffer because we wish really hard that things were different than they are. Often we wish that. And again, we have that, again, that mind that thinks, why is this happening to me? That mind that's always caught up in I, me, mine. How does this affect me, right? Not other people, me. How does this affect me? I need, I deserve more than I'm getting, right? Okay, where was I? Oh, Jambudvipa is just a name for uh, the area where the Buddha lived. So he's saying even, even the people there where the Buddha lived are full of suffering. So... What kind of hope is there for us? But there is hope for us. 
if I must be quite careful of a minor ordinary chasm. What need to mention the abyss where I'd fall a thousand leagues so for long? It is not right to sit content and say, I will not die today. It is inevitable the time will come when I will cease to be. Who will grant me freedom from fear? And how will I escape from this? I certainly will no longer be. How can my mind remain at ease? My past experiences are gone, and what do I have left of them? But out of my fixation on them, I've gone against the guru's words. If I must leave this life behind along with family and friends and go off somewhere else alone, what good all those I like or dislike? It would be right to only think in just this way all day and night. Non-virtue leads to suffering. How can I be freed from it? So he's saying, we're going to learn how to fear death less. And this is a very dark chapter, I guess. We're going to learn how to fear death less if we confess our misdeeds, if we cultivate virtue, if we know we lived a good life, then the fear of death will not be so powerful. The fear of death will not be so powerful if we can reflect and think I did the best I could. Okay. Whatever misdeeds I have done from being ignorant and deluded, whether they're naturally unwholesome or disobedient misdeeds, within the presence of their protectors, from fear of suffering, I join my palms and prostrate repeatedly, confessing every one of them. I supplicate you, guides, except that my misdeeds have been mistaken. They were not good, and for that reason, I'll never do such acts again. And so the truth is, sometimes we do, uh, resolve is important. So sometimes we do set that intention, I'm never going to do this again, right? And that could be whatever misdeed you have, I'm never going to do this again. It could be, I'm never going to cheat in a relationship again. It could be. I'm never going to, it could be something as simple as I'm no, never going to eat so much cake that I get sick again or drink so much that I get sick again. Um, and those are, and that's, this is important. Misdeeds are things that harm others. And they're also things that harm ourselves. That's, uh, there's a really empowering aspect of this in that we want to put down the things we do that harm ourselves too. Uh, the Dalai Lama said, if your compassion does not include yourself, it's incomplete. So when we talk about this, we're talking about loving and open-hearted compassion, and it's supposed to apply to everyone. You're part of everyone, right? So that's an important thing to reflect on. So we have talked a lot about impermanence today and death, very dark things, but then the point is, we're talking about this isn't supposed to be just about why things are bad, but also how we're going to make things better. But a step on that is recognizing things are bad. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've done a lot of wrong things. A lot. And where can I turn to feel better about that? Well, of course, I need to apologize. I need to make amends if I can, but also I need to confess I need to stand before these teachings and these teachers and confess to what I've done. And then most importantly, resolve to not commit the same misdeeds again. 
to not commit the same misdeeds again. Um, my mother always said to me, make good choices. So like, you know, I'm starting the first day of school. Okay, make good choices, you know. And uh, that sticks with me. I think that's an aspect of what we're talking about here too. We're cultivating virtue. We're trying to do good deeds. We're trying to help ourselves make good choices. All of this is about helping ourselves make good choices. We are trying to be more like the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to help ourselves make good choices. We're trying to, we're studying the teachings, learning about the teachings, the Dharma, to help us learn how to make good choices. And we're definitely trying to spend time with people making good choices to help us learn how to make good choices. That's what this is all about. So um, this has been very long, I know, and there's been a lot of imagery and a lot of dark imagery. I hope that you have find this found this talk helpful. Um, this is sort of where we f- are focused on what the problem is. And in later chapters, we're going to be more focused on, um, okay, so what can we do, right? So this is the, right now it's like this, what can I do? That is something I love to say. And that's the state of mind that I strive to cultivate. Right now it's like this, what can I do? We call that equanimity. It's just not falling apart when things get hard. Not falling apart when it seems like life is going sharply downhill. Because the truth is, for all of us, it seems that way sometimes. And it really can help us a lot if we can learn how to cultivate that right now it's like this mind instead of falling apart, instead of letting every little thing get to us. And that is easier said than done. It can be very hard, but I'm here to encourage you and try to help you learn to cultivate that mind. And also... Um, we talked about the Bodhisattva, uh, not the Bodhisattva vows, that'll be later. The refuge vows, that is the vow where you formally become a Buddhist. And if you have questions about that, you can you can send me an email. And I'm happy to talk about that with you. It is the vow where you formally become a Buddhist. It is a sacred ceremony that can be done. Um, I would compare it to uh, something like a church confirmation. I think, but it's where we really, really set our intention because the truth is, and it's not that like the Buddhas are watching and they see us make vows and they like put some magical energy in us. It's not like that. It's just because human beings respond to vows. Human beings respond to doing ceremonies and to setting intentions. We respond to those things and that's why we do it. It's not a magical thinking thing. Some people think of it that way, and I absolutely do not. It is intention setting. And we may think intention setting is not important, but it really is. So that is why we take refuge vows. I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay? So those are the things. They're called the three jewels because they're considered very, very precious and important. And I can tell you that for me, um, I practiced for a long time before I took refuge vows. And when I took them, it really did change things for me. And it probably would for you too. So if you've thought about dipping your toes into this, if you're just 
casually learning about Buddhism and you've thought about really taking it to a new level, I think refuge vows are a wonderful thing. And um, you can reach out to me to discuss that or reach out to your local temple, of course. Um, so thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Um, this chapter had a lot of imagery, but I have enjoyed talking about it. I didn't know I would. I thought it may be something tough to get through, but I have enjoyed it. It's important not to skip things like this. Okay, so that is all. Um, have a good day. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.